I've tried to picture throughout this uh, book of Ecclesiastes, which, which has not been an easy book to speak from. On the one hand, I've pictured the preacher as someone who sits at his desk, a true academic, putting together all this wisdom. And I've also pictured this preacher pacing up and down, trying to figure out the meaning of life. I confess to you that I've found it difficult to understand everything in this book. But I do think this preacher is consistent. He, he knows what he's talking about, even if I can't get to the bottom of it. On the one hand, he says, uh, wisdom is so great. Let's get as much wisdom as we can. And then he says, well, hang on. Don't go mad. Don't make yourself miserable through trying to learn too much. He says things like, this life is so short. We're all going to be dead soon. Let's, let's just enjoy the fruit of our labours. Let's, let's enjoy the food God's given us. And you might think, well, that's a bit of a, an ungodly way to live. But he keeps bringing it back to God. He keeps bringing us back to this principle that, yes, let's enjoy life, but let's still keep God at the centre. And that's the sort of, if you like, the whole way that book's been stitched together. And now, I'm grateful that, that at the end of this book, we come to this real high point we come to this high point because the preacher now is he's simplifying this, that he's distilling it down into something very straightforward, this one high principle that he calls the end of the matter. I've called this message, given it a title, the last word. This is the last word on these wisdom writings. It comes down to this, friends. God, you shall fear. His commandments you shall keep. Fear God. Obey Him. It says that this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man by which you know he means mankind, men and women. This is their whole duty. Certainly it is, it is for, for everyone. It is a message for the whole world. And yes, it could be that it means that this sums up everything God wants us to know. This is the crucial core of what God wants us to understand. That phrase, the whole duty of man, though, it literally, it says, in Hebrew, it says, because this is the whole of man. Not the whole duty, but the whole of man. And so, by this, it's possibly meant that to do these things, the fear of God and the obedience of God, to, to do them, is what it means to be properly human. 
that if we depart from those things, we become less human, we become uh, less of a mirror of the image of God. Now, for example, we, we would say uh, cruelty to animals, cruelty to people is inhuman. It's inhuman, it's very inhuman, and, and what's happening is it's inhuman because it's a departure from God's way, God's standards. And so as we become more cruel, for example, we depart from God's, uh, the humanity that he's created us to be. So to, 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 to fear God and obey him is, is to bring us into a place of being proper humans. That is what humanity is. And anything apart from that is contrary to God. And is inhuman. We could say that uh, conveniently for me there are, there are three things here. The fear of God, the commandments, and the mention of judgment at the end. And so I wanted to talk uh, for a little while about the fear of God. In what sense is the, 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 the unbeliever, that, that rebel against God, in what sense are they to fear God? Think about that. In what sense, how are they to fear God? I believe it's very uh, plain in what way they should fear God. The people of this world should be utterly terrified of God. They should be terrified. They're not terrified because they haven't seen God. He hasn't revealed himself to him in all his glory. And so we find this indifference. And yet still in, in our evangelism we we not so much pile on details about the you know the, 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 the torments of hell and describe it in, in every gory detail, but we are certainly to present God in such a way as to show his glory so that people might begin to understand what a holy and righteous God they have been rebelling against. And hopefully by the work of the Spirit, those people will begin to be scared. That, friends, is the point. The Bible unashamedly uses fear and the terror of the consequences of breaking God's laws. And the Bible uses that as one of the ways in which people are brought to Jesus. And that might sound like a terribly negative thing to, to say, uh, uh, a very unfriendly type of evangelism, but it's part of our evangelism. We present God and try to show the distance between him and them, that the gulf is way, way bigger than they thought, and they are in far more trouble than they can imagine. What about us who are saved? I've said before that we are to fear God. In what way? Has, has it changed? How has it changed? How are we to fear God? 
We don't go to God frightened to pray to him in, in terror. We, we, we run to him in prayer. We're not terrified of God in that way because the relationship has changed. However, he's the same God. Our relationship with him has changed since we were saved, but he hasn't changed as a result. He is still a God to be feared. Have a look at this, what it says in 2 Corinthians here. In 2 Corinthians, if you have a church Bible, it's on 1164, page 1164. And it's 2 Corinthians, and it's chapter 7. So Paul is writing to a church. He's speaking to them as, for the most part, believers on Christ. So 2 Corinthians 7, page 1164, it says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Our Christian walk is to be governed by this fear of God. It is to be always present. But obviously it's a certain kind of fear. You know, in, in Proverbs, you have heard this many times in Proverbs, it says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom or of knowledge. That's the starting point. It means that you can't have a proper knowledge of God or true wisdom unless you've been through that starting point, unless you've been through that process of fearing God and understanding that he is to be feared. I often wonder, you know, I often imagine, how would I react if I saw God in all his glory? Think about that now. And instinctively you might say, well if I saw God right now in all his glory, why I'd, I'd run right up to him and shake him by the hand. I doubt him. I doubt him. Isaiah was mightily used by God more than any of us will likely ever be. And he had a mere vision of God in all his glory. And within that vision, he was, he was, uh, he was scared. He was scared. And suddenly, that spotlight of God's glory cast into his heart made him realise, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm surrounded by people who are unclean as well. And he was overwhelmed. And friends, I, I often wonder if I, if I had this, uh, if I had this sort of visitation by God in all his glory, what, what would I do? I would, I would fall on the floor like you would. I would fall flat on my face. I might even, I might even say, Lord, please, no more, no more. Please back off. Such is the, the glory of God. He is an almighty God and a creator. And he is to be feared. However, I did say to you that the believer is in a different relationship. The fear of God. We might say for the unbeliever, God can barely look at them, such as their sinfulness and rebellion. God can hardly bear to look at them. 
But with us friends, he delights to look on us. He loves to look at us. He loves to watch us. He's our friend. He's our father. He's our creator. He's also our Lord. And he is mighty. And so we go to him in prayer in absolute boldness. And we speak to him like a loving father. And yet we fear him. Let me add this as well. I'm sure that came, I've turned the page over now, but I'm sure in that hymn it said something about this, uh, this, this fear of God. And it should give us courage. The fear of God should be like this. God is so powerful. He is all powerful. And he is on our side. Why on earth do we? Why would we fear men? Because they might, you know, type harm us or cause us pain or give us grief. Why on earth would we fear those when they are on the other side of the battle in which we have God Almighty on our side? Which is why, believer, that you are encouraged to not fear man or anything else in this world because you have God on your side. You have God on your side. So take courage, friends, from that. We fear God in a way. Let's think about the commandments of God. When I say the commandments, you uh, you might think, well, I picture, you know, Moses, the mountain, flashing lights, smoke all over the place, little clay tablets with some rules on. You think of that. So yeah, so God, through Moses, God gives this law that people say, we, we want a law, we want to keep rules, because people love rules. And God gives them and says, okay, here's, a, here's, some, here's some rules that, that show you my standards, to indicate you know, my high, high standards of behaviour and thought. And so they receive the law of God. God can't accept half-hearted rule-keeping. Because of his nature, he is righteous, he is perfect. If you want to live with God, you need to be perfect like him. That's the way it is. You can't go in as some scruffy sinner and expect to live with God. You need purification, you need the garments of salvation to live with God. And here's the warning that Paul says to the, um, now where's this in Galatians, this? This is in Galatians chapter 3. And this is what Paul says to that church. This is on page 1171, if you need that. 1171. Uh, so Paul's speaking to the church at Galatia, or Galatia, or whatever it's called, Galatia. And in chapter 3, and verse 10, Paul, halfway through, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, halfway through, Paul quotes this. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
it sounds to me like if someone fails to keep every commandment of God perfectly every day of their lives, then they have failed. And what's more, they are cursed. They are utterly cursed. Why is that? I said a moment ago that to, 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 in order to live with God, we need to be pure and clean and righteous as God is. We need that sort of perfection to, to live with God. So we need this thing, this righteousness. We need it like a, a, a brand new white coat draped over us. We need that righteousness. Unfortunately, although those people, those ancient people, hoped that they could keep all these rules and create their own righteousness, they could become perfect through being perfect law keepers, they failed. And everyone since then has failed. And everyone in the future who tries to keep God's commandments will fail. It is impossible to find that righteousness we need through keeping the rules, even the good and holy rules from God himself. We cannot attain that righteousness. This, friends, is the whole purpose of the gospel. What is the gospel but a means by which sinful people like us can get that thing we need can get that righteousness. That's what the gospel is about. There was a great transaction took place whereby somehow Jesus Christ took all my sins as if they were his and he gave me something as well. He gave me a robe of righteousness. If I checked the label on the back of that robe, it would have the name Jesus Christ because it's his righteousness. And friends, make no mistake, the righteousness you have been given as a Christian, if you're a believer today, is as righteous as Christ is, okay? It is of the same standard because it's Christ's. He doesn't give to us a lesser standard of righteousness. It has to be everything or it's nothing. And that, friends, is how we can live with God forever, clothed in Christ's righteousness. The question's often being asked, if our sort of way into God's glory forevermore is through something we have been given, we have been declared righteous now, that's it, it's permanent, we're accepted because of Christ, many therefore have asked, then, why do anything? Why, why be good? Why make an effort? Can't we just go and do whatever we want? We already have the righteousness of Christ. Only someone who didn't have Christ's righteousness would ask those questions. Only someone who wasn't a believer would say, well, can I go and sin now? Because I'll be honest, I, I really like it and I'd like to go back as soon as possible. Now everything's sorted. The one who's had the work of the Spirit in the hearts doesn't want to look back. 
That's like a pile of vomit. They don't want to go back to that. They want to go in the other direction. So it is that we, we, we find that we, we want to stop sinning. And it turns out that God expects us to behave and think a certain way. As people who've been redeemed from sin, God now expects us to behave and think in a certain way. Let me read from uh, Corinthians again. Uh, this is uh, fit. This is First Corinthians now, chapter 9, page 1152. Page 1152, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 21. I'm just reading the first bit. 1 Corinthians 9.21 To those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. And then he says, in brackets, he says, not being outside the law of God, I don't, I don't mean that, but under the law of Christ. Well, what is that? What is the law of Christ? We've heard of the Mosaic law. We... we you know there's ten commandments you know maybe a, a, a sort of a short version of God's law the ten commandments what is this law of Christ what is this thing it came up in the Bible study a few weeks ago on a Sunday night this principle came up Jesus managed to sum up <laughs> all the scriptures all the scriptures, all that, all the law and all the prophets, Jesus managed to sum it up for people, make it nice and easy for them to understand. Not easy to keep, but easier to say, easier to repeat, easier to memorize. He came up with these three principles. He said, love God, uh, love the brethren especially, and also love everyone else as well. And of course, he expects us with all our heart to love the people of this world, even our enemies. And, and we show that love not by sitting at home and thinking that they're a lovely person. The love is in going to them and doing things for them, praying for them, doing stuff. That is how the love is expressed. And then God says, now I want you to take that level of love and I want you to ramp it up. Because now you've got to love the brethren ten times more than that. These people, you would throw yourself under a bus for any one of them. That's the level of love for the brethren. And then God says, <coughs> you haven't finished yet. He then says, I want you to ramp that love up a hundred times more. And that's what you give to me. That's what is due to me. I said to your friends, there were just three things. Anyone like to claim that they've done those three things perfectly all their days? Well, that is what we're to aim for. That is what we are to go for. Love God. Love the brethren. Love others. 
We're just talking now about uh, the judgment of God. Uh, turning your Bibles to, uh, it's page 1163, and it's 2 Corinthians again. Back in 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. Second Corinthians five and verse ten. Paul says to them, he's speaking to Christians when he says we. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must all appear so that each one might receive his due. When the people of this world wake up at the resurrection and a judgment, an event they never believed would take place, I can imagine they begin to, in their minds, form a case, the case they will bring to God, and they will quickly try to build a list of all the good things they've done. They will say how oh, they've visited this person, and they've given money to charities, and all oh, the things they've done. And they stand there, and with their pathetic offerings of good works, And since they don't have the, right, the righteousness of Christ, God will, uh, if you like, just be interested in one thing. Have you kept, have you kept up to my high standards in all your behaviour and in your very thoughts and in your speech? Have you obeyed me in every way perfectly or not? That's the only question. You can probably guess there's not a single person who will be able to say that they have. This whole duty of man to fear God and obey him, it, it just can't be carried out to a high enough standard for people to be delivered from judgment. And so this person is, is standing, terrified now, when it's too late, terrified now. And this little meagre offering of things they've done through life will be discarded. The judge will say, you were to disregard all those things. And so the, the sinner will just stand, as it were, naked. With no case. God, friends, is, is really is the judge, the jury, and the executioner. God does not give the job of a jury to some sinful creatures or even to holy angels. He reserves every aspect of this judgment. He's the jury. He's, he's, he's the judge. He's the executioner waiting in the wings. He's all of those things. So that every aspect of judgment will be perfect. 
and will be just in the highest degree. There is no room for any injustice here. And it is because, because there's no room for God to do anything else. He must be just. He must do what is right. He cannot let anyone off. He cannot feel sorry for them. He cannot even have mercy on them. Justice will be carried out. And so it is that that person will be escorted out of court uh, forever to be separated from God and all that is good. The judgment for the believer. How will that go? The judgment for the believer. How different that will be. <laughs> there's no there's no preparing a case of, of, of you know my, my good things outweigh my bad things or any nonsense. The believer stands there. And Satan can come up with a, a, a book this thick about all, 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 all my sins. And the judge, is, uh, the judge will dismiss that. All those sins, all those sins have been paid for. The penalty's been paid for them. So move on. And Satan will have nothing left because every last scrap of sin that I have committed, every tiny impure thought throughout my life, everyone paid for by Christ, absolutely innocent. And so for the believer, that's for me and for you if you're a Christian tonight, today, it's for you too, that you will be declared completely innocent, completely righteous, completely ready to be escorted the other way, escorted to join the celebration of the saints. We just stand there and say, my case, my case is him, my case is Christ, that's it, and that will be enough, friends. You point to Christ, that's it, that's all you need. Well, it's a, a satisfying ending to this book. I'm so pleased it, uh, it brought it all to this head at the end. So uh, this preacher has been talking about meaningless. He's often talked about the pointlessness of life. But he means pointless without God. Meaningless. Meaninglessness. It, it, it can drive someone to despair. What's the point of even living? But what does it do? What does it do for the preacher? It drives him instead to God. It drives him to piety. It drives the preacher to devoting himself to God. That's what it does. When you realise that herein is the meaning of life, it drives you naturally to God, to a different life altogether. For us, piety means devoting yourself to God at home, praying as much as you can, reading the word of God, 
And as you are able, studying it as well. We are to we are to look for excuses to meet with the people of God. We are to try and meet with the people of God as often as we, as we can, and devote ourselves to them. Be there for them and devote ourselves to the saints. The, this is the uh, this is the preacher's last word on the subject. It's also my last word. I won't be preaching to you anymore. This is my final sermon, and it's been a it's been a privilege, really. It's always a privilege to minister the word of God to His people. It always it always is, and that's no less the case here. It has been a wonderful, blessed experience for me to take the word of God and to distribute it uh, to you in these past uh, couple of years. So it turns out that the preacher's last word on this subject is also my last word here. And it is a, it is a privilege to finish on this one thing, to urge you, to encourage you, friends, to fear God and obey him with all your heart and your soul and your strength. To God be the glory. Amen.